Well, good morning. And those of you joining us online, thank you for joining us online. Hey, we are going through the letters. The, we call those, those epistles. But before we do that, let me just make a, a comment about our vision and the, the vision brochure that uh, Ross was just mentioning. There's three words that we are trying to use to kind of help you understand kind of what we feel our vision, our mission is. The first one is connect. We want to help people connect with God through Jesus Christ. And we want them to know uh, Jesus as their Savior. So for many people, that's the first step is to connect with God through Jesus Christ and to know him. Secondly, we want people to, to grow. Uh, and growing is kind of a lifelong thing. You never arrive. And one of the best ways to grow, we think, is in life groups. That when you're in a group of people on a regular basis and you're connected to God's word and God's people, good things happen in your life. You'll find yourself growing. You'll ask questions and get answers. You'll make friendships. You'll have some accountability. You'll have some just good people around you. And that's how I think God intended us to be, not alone. We're meant to do life together. So we call those life groups. And then the last thing is serving. Uh, we think that God has given each every one of us gifts and abilities, resources that we can use, not just for ourselves, but for others. And so we want to be a church and a community that serves not only one another, but serves our community. So I don't know where you're at in that process of connecting with God or growing or serving, but we want to help you take whatever the next step is. And that's really what we're about. And that's what our vision is. So wherever you are in, in your, your walk of faith, or if you're just exploring, or you've been a Christian for many years, you never arrive. You're always growing. You're always we want to help you take whatever that next step is. So that's why we exist as a church. And um, the budget's in there, and it's a good, good document for you to look up online. As Ross said, if you're a member, you'll get that. But we are going through the letters. And my assumption is that the people in this, in this room right now, the people uh, joining us online, uh, you're in a, a number of different categories. Because I think what you, think, what you assume is the people around you are Bible scholars. And look at the person next to you and say, are you a Bible scholar? <laughs> uh, they're, not, they're not, probably. And uh, I remember when I first became a follower of Jesus Christ, a Christian, I remember uh, thinking uh, that John the Baptist and the Apostle John were the same person. And some of you are saying, they're not. <laughs> and you go, okay, so if you think that, you're in the right place because that's right where I was. And I felt like I was an idiot. And then there's some people in this room and watching that are very well, you know, you've been a Christian for a number of years, you know the Bible, you know the stories, and you know all that stuff. So we understand that we have a diverse audience in, along those lines. So we want, you, we want you to understand that if you're just showing up here watching for the first time, uh, that we're going to help you uh, learn about the book of what we call First Thessalonians, which is in the New Testament. And so we're going through the letters. We call those epistles. And uh, they're basically, there's three types of, of literature in the New Testament. There's the gospel and acts, which are kind of a historical narrative. You have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, hold the horse while I get on. And then you have the book of Acts. And then you have the letters. And there's a, a bunch of these letters, epistles, which we're going through. And then you have the book of Revelation, which is apocalyptic literature, which is probably the most difficult of all of scripture to interpret because it uses a lot of symbolism so we've been going through these letters we started with romans and 
went through Corinthians, and now we're, we're working through that, and we're in 1 Thessalonians. So you may not know anything about the book of 1 Thessalonians, but by the time we get done today, I hope you will know quite a bit about it. What, we wanted, what we've been doing in this series, too, is we've been trying to show you that as you read through the book of Acts, you'll find that many of the letters that we read, 1 Thessalonians is a good example, we have where in Acts, the book of Acts, where the, book, where the church of Thessalonica began. And so we have a kind of a reference point to that letter of 1 Thessalonians. So I want to look at that right now. So if you have a Bible, turn to Acts chapter 17 just for a minute. And we're only going to be there for a short period of time. But this will give you a little background so you can understand when Paul writes to 1 Thessalonians, the, the people of 1st uh, the people of Thessalonica, when he writes 1 Thessalonians, you can understand a little bit about them. Look at what, look at what it says. This is um, Acts chapter 17, verse 1. When Paul and his companions had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, sorry, they came to Thessalonica where there was a Jewish synagogue. As was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah, he said. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women. So we have a number of, Paul's going into the synagogue, he's teaching that Jesus is the Messiah that the Jews have been waiting for, the deliverer, the, the king, right? And so many Jews believed him, and a number of Greeks or Gentiles believed him, and prominent women. But something happened. There were a number of Jews who were very opposed to Paul. And they began to ramp up mobs and crowds against Paul to the point that it became unsafe for Paul and his companions to stay uh, in Thessalonica. So they fled. They had to leave. And they were told, you need to get out of here. You could read about that as you go through Acts chapter 17. And so they finally, this mob came to the house of Jason. And Jason was just a friend, and he allowed Paul and his companions to stay with them with him. And so they came and they grabbed Jason and he said, where's Paul? And he's gone, man. He's, he left. And, and they grabbed him and they pulled him before the, the, the city leaders and, and they tried to, 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 you know, get him thrown into prison. And so, that it, so but Paul and, and, and his, his gang had to go and they, they left. They went to Berea. So that's a little bit about the background of First of, of Thessalonians. It was uh, the city of Thessalonica, interesting city. It was the capital of Macedonia. It was well populated. It was built like on a crossroads, on a trade routes. So it was very, um, we'd look at modern day Greece. I remember a number of years ago, I was uh, going to uh, Mali, West Africa, and I flew into Istanbul and then from Istanbul into Africa. And I was, you know how uh, sometimes you're really bored on a flight? And you look and they have this little map and it shows you where the plane is and what you're going over and all that. And I look down all of a sudden and I see Thessalonica. And I go, cool. So I pulled my Bible out and I started reading through Thessalonians because that's where Paul was writing to. So Thessalonica, very interesting. So we talked about Jason. He was a man who kind of housed Paul and his friends. 
And some people think that Paul may have spent as much as three months there to establish and begin the churches there in Thessalonica. Now, Timothy was one of the companions that went with Paul. And Timothy put himself at risk because he had to sneak into the city and to deliver the letters that Paul was going to write, these letters that we're reading right now. He had to communicate and encourage the believers while he was there. But he had to do this kind of secretly because it was a dangerous thing for him to do. Very interesting. As you think of Timothy, remember that. Put that in your brain because in the next few weeks, we're going to talk about First and Second Timothy. And those are letters that Paul wrote to Timothy, his protege. Now, I've said to people over the years, I've said there's three types of relationships you need to have in your life. The first one is we all need a Yoda. We all need somebody that we look up to, a mentor, somebody that we can bounce ideas off, somebody can speak into our life, somebody that can kind of give us a perspective that we can't get on our own. And they may be more seasoned, they may be older than us, but we have somebody, a Yoda, in our life, right? Um, then we need to have peers, people, you know, the Bible talks about iron sharpening iron, people that we uh, can, can, we're, you know, we rely on, they rely on us, we have good relationships, they help us, we help them, but we grow together, and there's a, a certain level of accountability there. And then the third relationship we all need, we need a Yoda, we need, you know, a peer, but we also need a protege. We need somebody that we're pouring our life into. So Paul was basically pouring his life into people like Timothy and others. And we need somebody like that in our life. So I want to ask you, do you have those three relationships in your life? Do you have a Yoda? Do you have a peer, a group of peers? Do you have somebody that you're pouring your life into and that you're helping them take whatever the next step is? Uh, those are really important relationships, and it will make you a richer person and a richer Christian if you have those going on. So Timothy was Paul's protege. And then the last thing you want to say is probably Paul wrote 1 Thessalonians while he was in Corinth, the city of Corinth. And probably around A.D. 51, um, probably just a short time after having visited on his second missionary journey. Um, so that's a little background for Thessalonica. Now what I want to do is I want to talk a little bit about a couple of passages. The first one is in chapter 4, verse 13, and I want to read this. Now, you may have heard this passage before, and you may have heard it at a funeral. And uh, that's very interesting. But look at what he says. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13. Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death, so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not certainly precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet call of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are alive and left and are left will be caught up together. You might want to remember that phrase, caught up together with them in the clouds. And then to meet the Lord in the air. Remember that phrase. And then he says, and so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. So there's 
A couple of points I would just want to draw from this passage. The first one is this, that we are the welcoming party, not the planning committee. And you say, Matt, what in the world are you talking about? Well, too often we come to a passage like the one we just read, and people want to make statements about it. They want to make eschatological statements, uh, the study of last things. They want to say, oh, this is talking about the rapture before the seven-year tribulation, and uh, it's, pre, it's a pre-tribulational rapture where they're caught up together, they're raptured, and uh, this is the passage that's dealing with the rapture of the church before the seven years of tribulation. Some of you have heard that. It's a very popular view. Uh, it's actually a, a fairly new view compared to other views, but in a, in a sense, that is the view that you probably heard. And here's what we, we do here. We come into all of these ideas, and some of you won't even know what I'm talking about in a minute. Uh, there were movies that were written, uh, that were you know, books that were written in movies a number of years ago uh, called Left Behind. I think there was a whole series of books and movies. And it was, uh, the, you know, the, they, were, they were awful movies. They, they just weren't very good movies. But anyway, they were interesting because you'd see a plane and you see uh, like a pilot and uh, all of a sudden the, the, the pilot would be gone. Like, and the co-pilot go, what's going on here? And cars be crashing and and what was going on? Well, it was the rapture of the church, and the, and the Christians were being taken out, and all this, pan, you know, this pandemonium was going on on the earth. And, uh, you know, you've been left behind. You know, there's a song and everything, and it was, it was, it was really sad. And, but th- this came from a passage like this. Now, here's the problem with that. The problem with that is we often want to know when and how, Right? of the second coming of Jesus. But that's not what Paul was trying to do here. What was Paul's intent here? Well, Paul was, was being very pastoral here because what was he dealing with? He was dealing with a group of Christians who had lost their friends, their neighbors, family members, their mothers, their children, their sons, their daughters. And they thought that Jesus was going to come back before anyone died. And all around them, they have people dying. And some of you right now, over the last year or two, you've lost people that have been very close to you. You've lost them. They're gone. And you're just like they were. You're saying, what happened to them? Where are they? And Paul basically says, don't grieve without hope. You say, what do you mean? How can I not? How can I not grieve without hope? Paul was basically telling them, this is what's going to happen. He says, I don't want you to be uninformed. I don't want you to be out there and not know the truth. Here's the truth. And so what does Paul do? Paul basically says, this is what's going to happen. He says, the dead in Christ, that's a great important phrase, in Christ. The dead in Christ will be raised first. And then we who are alive at the coming of the Lord. So if the Lord were to come today, All those dead in Christ, those graveyards would open up and all the dead in Christ would be raised. And then we who are alive would be caught up together would be with the Lord forever. And Paul basically says, because you know of the resurrection that's coming, because you know of that, you have a hope that the world doesn't have. Because the hope basically said, that's it, it's over, it's done, there's no hope. 
There's no hope beyond the grave. Paul says, oh, yes, there is. There's a resurrection beyond the grave. Even those who have died will be raised. Even those who have died will be raised. That's our hope. And so Paul says, grieving is absolutely okay, but grieving with no hope is not okay for the Christian. Grieving with hope. We have a hope that goes beyond the grave. Basically, he says that. And, and that's his point. Now, it's interesting because he says, we'll be gathered up with the Lord, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. But it doesn't say what happens next. It doesn't. But people want to fill those blanks in. And they say, well, what happens next, Pastor, is there'll be a seven-year tribulation period, and halfway through, three and a half years, the Antichrist will be revealed, and the mark of the beast... And you get into the mark of the beast and seven years and then the, you get into all of that stuff and you go, what in the world is going on here? Where do they get that? We call that in verse 17 the pre-tribulational rapture of the church, meaning it's going to come before the seven-year tribulation. And they say the rapture being caught up is going to take place before uh Everything, hell breaks loose on earth, essentially, is what it comes down to. The church is raptured, it's caught up out of this world before the seven-year tribulation. That's one way to interpret it. Can I give you another? Say, Matt, don't go there. Don't go there. I have all my ducks in a row, don't do that. There's another way to interpret this passage. You remember I said, remember that, and we will meet the Lord in the air, that phrase meet. That's kind of a Greek, one Greek word. And essentially what it, what it means is there was another time, and, and essentially what that word means in the Greek literature is, essentially it means there's usually a dignitary, a king or a warrior, and the whole town goes out, the whole village, the whole city goes out to greet them. And then they come in with the victory together as a parade. Wait a minute. I think I remember something about that in the Gospels. Wasn't that somewhere in John chapter 12, verse 13? Yes, exactly. <laughs> Where Jesus is gathered with a crowd of people and they were saying, Hosanna, Hosanna. And they're putting palm branches down and they're saying, Hail, you know, the King of the Jews, right? And, and, and what is Jesus doing? He's coming into the city of Jerusalem. The same word is used there, gathering, for a victory, a warrior. Is it possible that 1 Thessalonians, when he talks about this gathering up in the, in the, in the air, uh, that, 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 that it's that similar to the gathering before Jerusalem, but this time Jesus is going to come down with all Christians to the heavens and to, from the heavens to the earth, the new heaven and a new earth. Well, that's possible. But that doesn't fit in the pre-tribulational rapture, Pastor Matt. No, it doesn't. And the point isn't to, to try to switch you from one view to another. The point is to say that's not the point of the passage. The point of the passage is that Paul is concerned about his people and they're concerned about people they loved who are gone, and they don't know what happened to them. And Paul said, it doesn't matter, they're dead, but they will be raised one day. And what Paul is teaching is the resurrection of the dead. 
and a gathering together with Jesus. That's what he's teaching in his passage. He's not teaching anything more, anything more, either the view of the pre-tribulational rapture or the other view that I just gave you. That's speculation, folks. So no, don't go watch the movie. <laughs> the passage is about the resurrection. That's what Paul says we should have our hope in. All right, here's the second thing from this passage. Knowing the final score makes the game more bearable. And you say, Matt, your points are not clear at all today. Not at all. <clears throat> in the first century, death was a one-way street for, for the people that, you know, in Thessalonica. And they had very little hope. Let me give you a, a few of the views that, that they had. This is what they thought. Uh, again, we're, what we're doing is we're, we're looking at Paul's audience, the people of Thessalonica, who were Jews and Greeks and, you know, rich and poor and slave and free and men and women. And, and they're starting to form this church. And they had these views. The, the culture had these views. And this is what happened. And the question was, what happens when you die? And there were a lot of views. And here are some of the views. Socrates taught the concept of the eternal soul and basically said the eternal soul is an immortal body. And once the mortal body dies, the eternal soul is released into the kind of the energy of this, the universe and the soul is better off without the body. And the Greek, that's the Greek idea that the, the body is the prison of the soul. And at death, the soul is released. And he taught the idea of the eternal soul. Now, this, this idea of the eternal soul has creeped into parts of Christianity because some people have taught that you have an eternal soul. You don't have an eternal anything. Your body, your soul, your spirit is not eternal. If it weren't for a resurrection, it's over. That's his point here. That's his point here. There is no eternal soul. Life depends upon Jesus and Him giving us resurrection. It always depended on Jesus. It never didn't. Okay? And I know that last phrase wasn't grammatically correct, so we'll strike that. All right, what about Plato? Plato taught that uh, the concept similar to what we call reincarnation or transmigration. Now, we don't teach transmigration in, in our community because it doesn't appeal to us because we can be a bug or an animal or something like that. But uh, the idea is that you, you die and the soul at death passes into a new body. And it could be an animal, it could be a person, it could be whatever. Um, the Epicureans, another belief, they believe that human consciousness ended with the death of the body. So essentially, that's very close to materialism that basically says you live, you die, and you're done. The minute your, your brain or your, your whatever dies, you're done. You're dead, and all your memories are gone. That's it. Game over. Uh, the Stoics. The Stoics had a different view of death. They basically said uh, you need to just accept reality. Uh, some people even dress it up and say death is a beautiful part of life. Paul would disagree with that in 1 Corinthians 15 where he mocks death and he says, death, where's your sting? Nah, 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 nah. Uh, he's not quite saying that death is something we should just sit back and enjoy and embrace as a natural part of life. Uh, basically, Paul says that's not the case. But the Stoics believe that a good death would be characterized by uh, 
uh, uh, mental tranquility, a lack of complaining, and a gratitude for, for the life that you've been given. And by the way, I've done a number of funerals where I've had people who have had that view. Um, Marcus Aurelius, uh, basically, that was his perspective that, yeah, you just, you die with dignity in a sense, and you say, I'm glad I had what I had, and I don't have any hope that goes beyond the grave. And so the idea there is the majority opinion in Paul's day was the soul would travel to a gloomy underworld. Yay, gloomy underworld. No, no, not yay. No. So you could see when Paul says, no, none of those, here's what's going to happen. The dead in Christ will be raised, and we who are alive will be raised, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Body, soul, spirit, with Jesus forever. New heaven, new earth. That's what the gospel is. Is it any wonder why they needed instruction? So do we, by the way. Here's the point. The resurrection means that you finally become and get everything that you've meant to get and everything you've meant to be. You get the family that you've always wanted. You get the body. You know that body that's breaking down right now? It's got issues. You get a new body. There's some things you leave behind. Pain and suffering. Dying and death, wheelchairs, crutches, being paralyzed, being blind, being mute, being deaf, the emotional and psychological struggles that you have, they're all gone. Jesus gives us a preview, doesn't he? What did he do when, when Jesus came from heaven to earth? He healed the blind so they could see. He opened the ears so people could hear. He loosed the tongues of the mutes so they could speak. And when you look at the miracles, they were immediate miracles. They immediately saw, they immediately heard, they immediately spoke. And the lame immediately walked. No physical therapy needed. That's what heaven is going to be like. So, my point here is this. That if you know the final score, that makes life here on earth more bearable. Even when you're going through difficult times. Now, how is that? A number of years ago, I was watching. Actually, I couldn't. I had an event, and it was a church-related and one of my teams was playing in an important game. And um, I was kind of hoping that no one would tell me the score. You know, because they knew I was a fan. And say, so say, don't tell me the score, don't tell me the score, don't tell me the score, don't tell me the score. And I made it all the way through the event. And at the end of the event, somebody came up and said, what a game! Did you see it? It was incredible. I can't believe they won. They were down by blah, blah, blah in the fourth quarter. I can't believe they came back. No, I haven't watched it yet. Thank you for letting me know. So I went, I went home, and I put it on, and of course my team was down, and it was down big in the fourth quarter. It was like, oh, this is bad. They're not going to win. There's no chance at all. 
And then the announcer says, this is it. They need a big play here. And I go, no, they're going to get it. What are you talking about? And of course, they did get it. Whoa, what a great play. Well, what are you talking about? Of course. Is, well, they need more points. They'll get them. Don't worry. You know, and I'm, it's like you're talking back because you already know. You watch with a total different view. If I didn't know the score, I would go, oh, it's over. But because I did know the score, we win. Do you know what Jesus said on the cross? The last words he said? It is finished. I win. And because I win, you win. What's the book of Revelation? Fourth quarter score, final score. New heaven, new earth. Wipe away all the tears. So shall we ever be with the Lord. See, if you have an eternal hope, that's why Paul said, don't grieve like those who have no hope. Their hope ends at the grave. Paul says, your hope goes far beyond the grave. You have a hope that goes beyond the grave if your hope is in Jesus Christ. Third point, let me finish with this. Your view of the future should guide your life today. Jump over to chapter 5 for a minute. Let me read through this. He says this, 1 Thessalonians 5.1. Now, brothers and sisters, about the times and the dates, we do not need to write you, for you know very well the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. While people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly. As labor pains on a pregnant woman, they will not escape. But you, brothers and sisters, are not in darkness, so this day should not surprise you like a thief. You are children of the light, children of the day. We do not belong to the light, or to the night, or to the darkness. So then, let us not be like others who are asleep. Let us be awake and sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night. For those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since you, we belong to the day, notice, let us be sober, putting on faith and love as the breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. helmet. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, that's what he said in chapter 4, whether we died or asleep, um, we may live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up, just as, in fact, you are doing. So the question is, knowing what we're learning today and what Paul has taught us today, how should we then live? And there's two things. Number one, he says, be awake and alert. The second coming of the Lord, you can, you can listen to all the preachers that tell you who the, the Antichrist is and what the mark of the beast is and when the day is coming. You can read all those books and then throw them away when the date comes and passes. You can do all of that, but he says, you don't, you don't need to know the date. What you need to do, and this is what Scripture says over and over, we're not part of the uh, planning committee, we're part of the welcoming committee. And what, what Scripture says over and over, here's what you need to do. Be ready. Be alert. You know, when my wife was pregnant, we have five boys. When my wife was pregnant, and she was in the last week or so or, of, of the baby when it was supposed to be. It was like she'd have a pain. Is that it? No, it's not it. Is that it? No. And then all of a sudden, when you weren't thinking about it, all of a sudden, it's it. What? You know, and you're like, surprised. Well, I wasn't surprised. I was surprised, but I wasn't surprised. And that's Paul's point here. You don't know, but you should be ready. 
See, we don't have to be clueless about it. And we don't be, and being clueless says, oh, everything's great. Everything's going in a good direction and everything will get fixed. And, 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 and we don't need the Lord and, you know, all this stuff. That's clueless living. But we should live lives with eternal purpose and meaning. Here's the second thing. Live a life driven by faith, hope, and love. The three, this is the triad of, of virtues that over and over and over in Scripture you see. Faith, hope, and love. Now, what do they mean? Well, where have you placed your faith today? Many people are placing their faith in an institution, in their good behavior, in their belief system, whatever. And I just want to tell you that unless you place your faith in Jesus Christ, you are in big, deep trouble today. The Bible says very clearly that you are not doing well spiritually, that you are not moving towards God, you're moving away from God. And God sent a rescue party from heaven to earth. Jesus got off of his throne in heaven and climbed up on a cross for you. He died so you could live. He took your sins so you could be forgiven. And the Bible says that until you come to a place and you realize you can't save yourself, you need a savior, you're drowning in your own sin. Until you come to that place and you call upon the Lord, you are lost. Have you ever done that? Where are you placing your faith today? Are you trying to save yourself? Are you trusting in your own goodness? The Bible says all our good works are like filthy rags. We all fall short. So where is your faith? Where is your hope centered today? If your hope is centered on this life and this life only, when things go wrong, things really go wrong. You start saying, I want to do this before I die. I need to do this before I die. We, we, have, we develop a bucket list. We say, I have to do this. I have to get this all in because after this, I don't think I have anything. The Christian says exactly the opposite. It says, I don't need a bucket list. The bucket list is on the other end. The best is yet to come. I have yet to see. The Bible says, eye has not seen, ear has not heard what the Lord has for those that love him. In other words, he's saying, dream the biggest dream you have, and it will immediately fall short of what God has planned for those that love him. That's your bucket list. That's the hope that goes beyond the grave. That's the hope that says, one day I'll see you again. One day I'll hug you again. One day we'll walk together. One day we'll work together. One day we'll eat and drink together. and We'll laugh and sing together. That's the hope that Paul's talking about. And then love. The last one is love. And we love God and we love others. And we don't just love the people that love us and are nice to us and are kind and gentle to us. We love people who are harsh to us, people that, that rub us the wrong way, people that are they're prickly and, and mean and not nice. And we show them dignity and respect. Why? Because they have the image of God and because our Savior told us, I want you to love them as I love you. Because when I loved you, you weren't very lovable. You weren't very kind and gentle. Faith, hope, and love. That's how we're to live. With the expectancy that Jesus could come back at any time. So Paul says to his, his people in Thessalonica, don't worry about those who have died. You'll see them again. Now, here's how you live. With anticipation, with hope, 
with faith, with love. May God help us to do that. Because if we do that, we'll be the church that God has called us to be. Amen? Stand with me and let's pray together. Father, help us to do that because without your spirit, we can't. We need your help. We need your spirit. We need your people and we need your word. Help us to humble ourselves so that we can be taught and directed. I pray, Father, that each person, whether they're in-house here today or online watching, that they would ask you in their heart, what is the next step you want me to take? And Lord, I will take that step this week, today even. For your glory, we pray this in Jesus' name.